Welcome to the Retail Focus Podcast, a weekly collection of news, interviews, and information from the world of retail. Here are your hosts, Trent Kling and Leighton Kling. Welcome to the Retail Focus Podcast with Leighton Kling. I'm Trent Kling. Big week again for grocery, and we'll break that down step by step. We've also got an interview guest, manager of the Good Dispensary in Mesa, Arizona, Christine Islanian. She joins us, of course, after our interview with Data Owl last week to talk a little bit about how they're using e-commerce to make sure that they keep the flow of customers coming in during the COVID-19 restrictions. We'll also talk about Tractor Supply Company. They gave us a lot of insight into their first quarter sales as well as some of the different initiatives they're taking in the farm and home space. A reminder that you can check us out on Instagram and Twitter at Retail Podcast. Also, reminder, if you like us, certainly rate us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you do access us. On that note, a quick shout out. We got a rating this week on Apple Podcasts and it was interesting because it contained some feedback regarding uh, basically they felt like we were taking cheap shots at Hobby Lobby's management for using religion to make their decisions. And I, I do want to clarify, and I appreciate the feedback very much because it gives us the opportunity to clarify kind of what we were getting at there. I personally have no issue with management of a retail chain or any business using their religious beliefs as a background to making decisions. Where the issue lies, especially with Hobby Lobby, is using faith as a justification for doing something that is at odds with the main or principal tenets of that faith. And so I just wanted to kind of clarify that. I know there are some people out there that kind of probably wondered about what we were saying regarding Hobby Lobby, but believe me, I have a lot of friends who are very sincere in their faith, some of whom even in seminary school they tell me the same thing regarding Hobby Lobby, and we've interviewed former executives from Hobby Lobby both on and off the show. And again, that's kind of the vibe that we get is they use their faith to justify things even when they're done kind of in bad faith, so to speak. So once again, I appreciate that feedback, appreciate the ability to clarify what we were discussing. Well, as we mentioned, coronavirus is grocery and grocery employees, by the way, to the forefront of the news this week has been no different. Now, grocery has always been at the forefront of this show and our hearts. Leighton and I both worked in grocery in the past. It's good to kind of see everyone else catching up with the appreciation of grocery and retail workers. But four main stories this week caught our attention. We're going to run through them step by step. First, one in Texas is HEB is selling repack meals from local restaurants in their stores. Kroger, Walmart, and Safeway as well as Albertsons and others are trialing one-way aisles. Albertsons CEO Vivek Sankaran and UFCW International President Mark Perone are lobbying for grocery workers to earn an extended first responder designation to speed virus testing for workers. And finally, Hold Delays reveals stunning preliminary Q1 sales, especially for March. But Leighton, we begin with HEB. Yeah, we begin with HEB, Trent. And this is interesting. They launched this program this past week, Ready to eat meals are going to sell from local restaurant partners. HEB is in a unique position to do this with such a large footprint in a relatively small area. And for those who are unfamiliar with HEB, they're basically like the Publix of Texas. They are highly regarded for their in-store developments and were actually one of the first grocery stores to integrate in-store restaurants. 
The restaurant partnerships differ based on city, of course. San Antonio is where HEB started the program in cooperation with Max and Louise New York Diner. The restaurant said the HEB program actually enabled them to bring back over 10 furloughed employees. We're talking about benefiting the local staff there. They are certainly playing a part in doing things like this. And in Houston, the restaurant features are Cherry Block and Underbelly Hospitality. They are building out the platform in Austin as well with Fresa's Chicken and Tatsuya hopping aboard late last week. Picnic Austin also starting on Monday the 13th. There are a number of caveats to the program. For one, the meals aren't available in each HEB market. So some HEBs feature food from more than one provider, but given the logistics of the program as currently constructed, if a restaurant is a far enough distance from HEB in a particular market, it doesn't really make sense for them to serve as a provider. To that end, HEB is working to add restaurants to their portfolio with a total of nine so far announced. It will be interesting to see if this program is really pushed out to other markets beyond just those big three in South Texas, or if they continue to bring restaurants into the fold. More restaurants would certainly be good for both the customers and, like I said, the local restaurant staff that would be affected. Obviously, this is something that is logistics heavy on the day of production, since most of the meals that have been featured on their social media aren't intended to be on the shelves for more than a day. A lot of customers would not want restaurant meals to be sitting for more than 24 hours either. And there's also the issue of shelf space within the grocery industry. Ordinarily, this would be a problem. Inventory levels, as we all know, are tight and lean. But with the combination of panic buying, of course, and forced closures of some of their in-store food offerings, this actually shouldn't be much of an issue right now. So we move on to Walmart, Kroger, Albertsons, and Safeway, all trialing one-way aisles. Now, one thing I noted this week, this week actually I went to a retailer for really the first time since all of this hit, about the first time in four weeks. This appears to have mixed results because the Safeway I went to had marked one-way aisles. Just as many people seem to be ignoring directions as they do following them leading to aisles working in much the same way as they had before COVID-19. Now, one thing I did note from experience in municipalities where face coverings are either encouraged or required, the facial coverings often make it difficult for people to see things located on the floor. Many of those arrows are located on the floor. So if you're wearing a mask, especially a larger one or a makeshift mask, very difficult to see what's beneath your bandana. I've seen a few of those around here in Colorado. Now, the developments on this front happened fairly quickly. Regional grocer Hy-Vee, which is kind of, you know, we mentioned HEB. They're kind of the HEB of the North, if you will. Starting last weekend with this, Walmart, Kroger, Albertsons all began to trial these things midweek. And most stores had them in place in higher traffic areas. By the weekend, a vendor actually told me, a vendor that visits multiple stores, he told me via text that, He noted them in two Safeway stores in towns of less than 10,000 people, so it certainly seems to have permeated throughout most of Safeway's system, at least, because they're getting to the smaller markets. Kroger was a little bit more timid about implementation. They began with a handful of test stores, but have begun to scale it up since then. This was said by Grocery Dive to stem from a new Connecticut initiative to have customers flow in one direction where it is practical. The thought there is to keep aisles from featuring two-way traffic, which in most stores 
given the width of the aisles, would allow people to kind of unwittingly violate that six-foot guidance because a lot of those aisles, they aren't six feet wide. A lot of them you're looking at four, five feet wide, maybe six at the maximum. Now, despite these efforts, Walmart said over the past week that their customers might not be getting the memo regarding distancing. And so uh, there was actually some unrest regarding people ignoring six-foot floor markings in lines. So the supermarket lines at the front of the store. Now, most retailers have those markings every six feet. But some people were even being belligerent when employees were asking them to move back from other customers and give that six feet of space. As such, Walmart is kind of taking the next step. They're endeavoring to limit the number of customers in each store at any given time, something that was already being done in some markets and by some other retailers. Costco would be a good example of that. Initially, Walmart's plan was to float people through a single door in most Walmart locations. As most of you know, Walmarts generally have two entrances, with the exception of some Walmart neighborhood market stores and maybe some smaller stores in some of the smaller markets. Now, customers in their first plan would enter through one entrance and then they would leave through the second entrance. Therefore, in theory, making the six-foot rule easier to follow. What this did, though, was this caused congestion that led to some unmanageable lines at the one entrance as people were lining up to go into the store, the lines became so long, people were squeezing to within six feet in the one line allowed, and they were very difficult for employees to manage. So Walmart actually changed this by midweek. They opened both entrances to shorten the line length and make them more manageable. One thing that's kind of helped Walmart in this regard, and it's something we haven't really talked about on the podcast recently, but Walmart's increased focus on loss prevention. There are a lot more gates in some Walmart stores that prevent ingress and egress there. So ultimately, those are coming in handy now, as are some of their newly trained front-end employees. They kind of shifted the front-end supervisor role, or really the what was known as the greeter role as well, into one particular role there, those that are wearing yellow vests. And that's actually kind of paying off now for Walmart. So ultimately, Walmart is looking to keep the number of customers to five per 1,000 square feet in the store, meaning one in, one out after the store opens in the morning and swells to a certain number of customers. Now, some Walmarts are still well over 100,000 square feet. So you're looking in, in some markets, you've got still room for 500 people within the store, so still a substantial number of people allowed in the store in many markets. But in some cases, this 500, in fact, might even exceed local government's guidance for the number of people allowed per store. Some local governments have even gone so far as to specify that Walmart should shrink to 50 or 100 people in the store at any given time. But as it is, the majority of Walmart locations now have the one-way aisles in place, where it makes sense to do so. Obviously, Walmart's got a lot of open area there. You're looking at areas like apparel, areas like electronics. doesn't really make a lot of sense to do those one-way aisles, but the focus here primarily is grocery, again, along with general merchandise where most people are shopping. Now we transition to the part of the story where we talk about grocery workers being treated as first responders. Early this week, Albertsons and the UFCW released a joint statement lobbying for grocery workers to get extended first responder status. And this would effectively get grocery employees better access to personal protective equipment, also known as PPE, and quicker or advanced testing in theory. 
Not only was this the case in the press release, but the UFCW took out a full-page ad in the New York Times to lobby for these actions to be taken. As noted by Maria Halkias of the Dallas Morning News in our article on the subject, a recent poll by the Center of Science in the Public Interest found that 84% of Americans want grocery store employees to wear masks. Of course, this can only be done where employees have ready access to masks, and in many markets, they do not. Part of this is because of the massive shortage of them as people stockpile for their own resources. As such, for them to do so in some markets, they must make their own or, one supposes, maybe go to Joanne Fabrics and create your own there. But some grocery employees have them, but say the mask is prohibitive and they can't really speak to customers well and have wound up going in without them because people cannot understand them clearly. Some states have extended certain benefits to grocery workers as well, such as emergency childcare access. Still, other than a handful of localized measures, there doesn't appear to be a lot of progress on this front. I know one grocery store worker told you, Trent, that they're really wanting to be treated as essential workers, but what they really mean is that they're sacrificial workers. When we're talking about grocery store workers here and how they feel, this employee does have a point. If governments aren't going to recognize them to a certain extent, while they may be essential in a certain way, they may not feel that valued. Additionally, it is in all grocery stores' best interest to keep employees healthy, of course, and diagnose COVID-19 cases among their workforce early. We've seen some grocers who have an employee that is really taking a positive diagnosis, hit a massive rough patch as they attempt to then try to get all the other staff tested. Finally, a whole delays reveals the first quarter results there, and these are preliminary results that, as always, when we discuss them, we tend to ignore the sales from their massive European division and look at their banners in the United States. In this case, it gives us a valuable look towards customer shopping habits as we move through the stages of pandemic-induced grocery buying. CEO Franz Mueller was not shy about saying that their sales saw a big boost in the first quarter as a result of COVID-19. Their comp sales growth in the United States is expected to be up roughly 14% in the U.S. And again, the U.S. is seeing a lot of activity in the grocery sector. They're not taking into consideration gasoline for the quarter as a whole, but still really solid comp sales growth. For March alone, the comp sales were up a whopping 34%. They did note that there was a bit more of an extreme spike in sales and sales habits in the U.S. versus European divisions. That that could be due to the delayed U.S. response or the onset of the virus. Yeah, and they also mentioned on the call that they started to see stockpiling behavior take place in February in Europe. So that kind of, you know, maybe offset things a little bit as COVID-19 coronavirus, the media surrounding that didn't really hop on the bus here in the U.S. as early as it did in Europe. Now, unlike Dollar Tree, who last week warned that margin might take a hit with the panic buying and the boost in employment for both Dollar Tree and Family Dollar, Hold Delays said that they actually expect operating margin to be above last year's, at least for the first quarter, enterprise-wide. Now, they said part of this was due to timing because the accelerations in hiring, especially in the U.S., and additional employee benefits, so paying employees a greater amount per hour or giving employees bonuses for working, those aren't kicking in until the very end of the quarter, bleeding into the second quarter. Meanwhile, sales ramped up significantly earlier, so that's one of the reasons why they expect to see margin actually 
building in Q1 versus last year. Now, again, these are preliminary numbers, so we won't get the official ones for a few weeks yet. But Mueller was very hesitant to say exactly how all of this would impact their 2020 outlook. Most companies at this point have withdrawn guidance for 2020, but Mueller implied a potential drop-off in sales after all of the panic buying. So after people went through, bought paper products, stocked up, that was implied, but he didn't explicitly say that. Now, positive, as far as the bottom line goes, is that the company did increase expectations for cash flow, at least for now in 2020, which again gives them some leverage to make changes on the fly, much like a business we'll talk about later on in Tractor Supply. He closed out by noting a higher recommended dividend, which is also unique because we've seen some businesses, even businesses that seem to be benefiting from the purchasing habits, kind of tailing back their dividend a little bit, tailing back those share repurchases. Despite the fact that they recommended a higher dividend, he did say that operating margin level seen in Q1 was unlikely to be sustained in quarter two because of those investments related to employees, because of the internal store investments related to COVID-19 and preparations for COVID-19. Now, One final thing about hold delays, this was just a brief Q1 update. Full earnings for them, as I mentioned, they come out May 7th. However, their updates have rarely been too far off from their actual earnings information, especially as far as comps are concerned. Still a bit more financial reconciliation to do this quarter than most Q1s due to the influx, the unexpected influx in this case, in internal investments. Well, that'll do it for the first segment of the show. Again, we went in-depth as far as grocery is concerned, and we transitioned to the interview segment. Our interview guest this week is Christine Aslanian, manager of the Good Dispensary in Mesa, Arizona. She took time out of her very, very busy schedule this week, and she'll talk a little bit about buying habits and about her schedule, a little bit about the dispensary industry. This is part two of our two-part series as far as how dispensaries are dealing with with COVID-19 and coronavirus-related restrictions. Last week, we were joined by Dan Hirsch, who's the co-founder of Data Owl, to discuss the dynamics of dispensaries amidst the impacts of coronavirus. We're pleased to be joined this week by the manager of one dispensary that's putting some of the tools we discussed to work. Christine Eslanian is the operator of the Good Dispensary in Mesa, Arizona. Christine, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you for having me. So to kind of start off, just before we get into kind of how business is currently, I was wondering if you could give our audience just kind of a quick primer on the Good Dispensary, how long it's been in business, kind of your clientele and so forth. Sure. The Good Dispensary has been in business for a little over six years now. We originally were in Bullhead City, Arizona. We came down to Mesa, Arizona three years ago, and we've hit the ground running ever since. We, our demographics are primarily with moderate income households. We serve patients since we are in a medical marijuana state. We are a very high volume store. We see a close to 600 patients a day on average. With all of COVID-19 going on, that has reduced slightly. However, we have seen a huge increase in the average ticket per patient that shop here. I see. And that's kind of something that Dan was mentioning last week is the dynamics behind the number of visits versus average ticket has somewhat changed, which kind of leads me to my next question. You, you alluded to it a little bit, but with the COVID-19 concerns, how is business recently? Well, business has been 
actually really great. I mean, aside from staffing issues that we've had, because obviously staff has, have concerns over COVID-19, we have some folks who are considered high risk who are out right now currently on leave. But as far as business goes, we are still doing really well. Patients have really, we've obviously had to modify the way we operate to make sure that we're taking good measures for social distancing and making sure we're keeping our clients safe and our staff safe at the same time. But as far as impact on the business, it has had actually a positive impact on the business as far as gross revenue and such. Like when the news reported stay at home for Arizona, that mandate, that day of, right after that news, our orders went ballistic online. So people are still panic buying, trying to minimize the amount of times they visit the dispensary, so they're buying in bulk. Our ticket average has nearly doubled. Although we see like 23% folks less, our ticket average has nearly doubled over the course of this time. Because that's when people are home, are able to shop. Now, throughout the course of this time, all of our business days have been busier than normal. However, we are still a lot busier on the weekends than we are on like a Monday, Tuesday. It's very interesting. One other thing I did want to ask you, and I think this is the case whether you're a dispensary or any other business, you know, kind of as the manager there, what steps are you taking and what procedures are you taking with staff and customers in mind attempting to keep them safe? So as a medical marijuana facility, we've had strong sanitation procedures prior to this, and that's required by the Department of Health. In addition to cleanliness and sanitation procedures we already have in place, we're requiring all employees to wear gloves and masks while they're at work. We're also installing sneeze guard barriers at our registers to protect both the consumers and our staff. We're limiting the number of patients that are allowed in our waiting room and all other patients that have an online order, because we're only doing online orders right now, through Data Owl, Leafly, and a phone. So those folks who place an order are wait outside when their order is ready. And, of course, we enforce social distancing rules there and make sure that there's at least six feet of space stayed out. That's helped us significantly to keep a steady flow so that it doesn't become too confusing for patients. Because currently, all they're looking for is just direction from retail stores. Since so much change is happening, one thing that we hear a lot from our consumers is just clear directions as to how we are now operating with all of this going on. And you mentioned the tools with Data Owl. What are some of the specific tools or things that you are doing that you're implementing that customers seem to be taking well to? So some of the things that we've done is we've completely pivoted our business model to online only. Patients can place orders through our shop, through our website, shop.thegoodthecentury.com, and through the Leafly platform. Once their order is ready, Data Owl has the capability of sending a message saying your order is ready for pickup, and patients are then able to come and stand in line and wait to come inside the store to pick up their order. Typically, it takes anywhere from 10 to 15 minutes to fill an order and have it ready for pickup. So it's definitely helped with our operational flow. Patients are able to quickly get in and out. They just can't do the regular shopping. They can't add on to their orders. They need to really know what they want. And of course, we are always here as a resource. They can always call us and get suggestions. However, they can't shop the way they used to in store. So I'm kind of curious with that wholesale shift in the business model that you mentioned, how has that changed or has it changed at all the way the staff approach things on a day-to-day basis in terms of fulfilling those orders? 
Actually, yes. Prior to this, it would be one staff member to one patient. And they would have a, depending on what the patient is there for, they might need more information. It might take a longer time. So we had a lot more staff dealing with patients one-on-one. Now we have half the staff that are ringing up orders and the rest of the staff are filling orders and managing the intake of orders. So it gives them a sense of relief because not everybody is dealing with patients one-on-one. So a lot of staff members who are high risk, we're able to really accommodate them and make sure that they're not customer facing if they have asthma or other symptoms that could be potentially deadly if they were to contract the virus or anything like that. So we've been able to be a lot more accommodating with our staff as well with this new process. So it's been beneficial for them as well. And the staff that are dealing with patients one-on-one, it's typically if we give them the option to choose to do that, and if they choose to, then we allow them to do that. Otherwise, I mean, I will fill in as cashier if I need to, if it makes my staff feel better. Preparing orders, we have an excellent management staff who fills in all the time for those reasons as well. One other thing I wanted to ask you, because you you mentioned the quick turnaround there, 10 to 15 minutes to get an order filled. One of the issues that we're seeing outside of the dispensary space in grocery and general merchandise is people thinking there is inventory available, ordering it, and then finding out later that that inventory maybe wasn't available. How are you handling things on the dispensary front as far as inventory is concerned? Well, that happens with us as well because we are taking orders from two different platforms. So there are times where once we get to filling an order, we no longer have that item on hand. Typically, you reach out to the patient and ask what they would want to replace that item with or we replace it with a like item and then at checkout, we let the patient know. Normally, most of the time, they're okay with it. If they're not okay with it, then we handle it on a case-by-case basis wrap things up here. One thing I certainly wanted to ask you before we let you go, we don't talk about dispensaries a whole lot on the podcast as a whole, and obviously dispensaries aren't countrywide. It's only about half of the states that have them currently, but what are some things that our listeners should be aware of or be cognizant of as far as the dispensary space is concerned? Once things kind of return to normal, what are some things that you're looking ahead to as far as the industry is concerned? Well, I think that a lot of patients now see the value of ordering ahead of time with the way that we've been processing orders and the quickness with which they're able to pick their orders up. They see the value in placing pre-orders. I think that the industry itself will will shift so that more folks are placing orders in advance. And I also believe that conveniences such as delivery and curbside pickup will be part of our business model going forward, even after all of this becomes better and we start to operate as usual. Well, Christine, once again, we thank you so much for taking the time. I know it's a busy schedule that you guys have going on there, but we thank you for taking the time with us today and wish you best of luck here, not only over the next few weeks, but over the next few years. Oh, I appreciate it. Thank you. Good luck to you guys, too. Well, once again, we thank Christine for joining us, taking the time out of her busy day for us here on the podcast. And we go to the second news segment of the show. In a rare move, Tractor Supply Company this week released preliminary results for their first quarter. Usually, Tractor Supply waits until numbers are more or less final before providing these updates. However, with COVID-19, 
they got a jump on releasing some of the numbers last week. Now, the reason this story was towards the top of the list of things we wanted to cover is because there were a lot of news stories this last week from multiple areas, including Charlotte, which is where we kind of first saw these stories come into play of garden centers and farm and home stores being converged upon as people create pandemic gardens, or at least that's what they're being called. Now, this makes sense as people have more time on their hands to create the gardens, get into the backyard, oftentimes under self-quarantine or social distancing. So they're trying to get in front of preparation for maybe a garden they already had. So you're seeing a lot of that momentum. But additionally, there are those who are increasingly concerned about easy access to groceries going into the summer. And many produce items currently, they're unable to be ordered through platforms like ClickList or Amazon's Whole Foods interface and Walmart's online ordering system. By the way, I've been trying to place a Whole Foods order for 10 days now via delivery. Still no dice. They say delivery windows will open up. I've been refreshing every hour for about 10 days. Nothing doing there. I think I'm going to maybe shift to a different online ordering platform there. So just keep that in mind when people say Amazon is, is winning during this time of year, at least Whole Foods, it, it doesn't seem like things are going super well. One other concern to keep an eye on, though, is the harvesting of produce. I don't want to digress too much, but we discussed a couple of weeks ago, there is an apparent shortage of farm workers in the agricultural hotbeds of the U.S., including California. While the fields of greens have been planted, Real question there as to who will pick them. So that's driving people towards farm and home stores, it's thought. And that was actually reflected in some of the things the Tractor Supply said this week. Yeah, that's right. And we should move on to the numbers with that. And we highly suspect that farm and home stores will see similar trends overall to Tractor Supply here, whose comp sales were up, but not by much more than we've seen as of late. They've been doing very well over the last few years. A lot of people have been saying that they're basically under the radar in terms of high-performing retailers that just aren't talked about a whole lot. Comp store sales were up 4.3% over last year's first quarter when they saw an increase of around 5% over 2018. Tractor Supplies release did note that sales were assisted by a slight uptick in store visits in early March as customers began to stock up pre-pandemic. So that kind of makes sense as, as far as those sales are concerned. Remember that Costco saw greater stockpiling behavior in the Midwest and Texas than the rest of the country. Both regions are markets where Tractor Supply Company has a strong presence. This stockpiling activity was crucial for Tractor Supply Company as they saw a slight downturn in sales in cold weather seasonal categories in January and February. They blame generally warmer weather conditions this year for that. And overall, to put it in greater perspective, Tractor Supply Company's comps were up 12% over 2019 in March alone. This was driven by a 20% increase year over year in consumable categories. Consumable success was slightly offset with a downturn in sales from clothing, footwear, toys, and of course, gift items, which may play into some of the seasonality effect. We suspect that this decrease in spend on discretionary categories is something that we'll see for the likes of Ace Hardware, Fleet Farm, Atwoods, Orchelin, and all of the other banners in this particular space. We have noted that Ace Hardware has seen higher traffic than normal, at least anecdotally, as of late. Tractor Supply Company also noted in e-commerce, they've been having a lot of progress with what they've called significant growth in the month of March. Because of the higher sales trends, they expect first quarter earnings to be in the neighborhood of around $0.69 cents to $0.71. Cents. They also noted that so far, second quarter sales have picked up 
right where they left off in March. In fact, they noted that sales are really strong while purchases move from consumables to what the company calls more seasonally relevant categories. Despite this, because of the mass uncertainty, they did as many other companies are doing and announced that they are withdrawing 2020 guidance. This is a smart move. They did place a price on the cost of doing business as an essential retailer of around 30 to $50 million above the typical cost of doing business over the next few months. This cost, of course, includes the cost of hiring employees and following the rigorous guidelines that were brought forth for sanitation and other measures in an attempt to ensure the safety of the customers and the employees at these particular stores. They were clear that these costs are, in fact, manageable with around $450 million in cash and cash equivalents and over $160 million available through current debt facilities. One other thing of interest from this update press release is that they noted that the exact timing of any stimulus checks to the public would also affect sales flow. They anticipate a bit of a bump surrounding that time when they do get released. They gave this update on the first quarter sales a day after sending out a press release updating their COVID-19 operating procedures. While e-commerce was mentioned in passing in the sales update, they really took center stage here with the procedural update for COVID-19. They are rolling out same-day delivery for all of the stores in their system. This is a massive undertaking as many of their stores are in more rural markets that aren't necessarily as heavily populated, not fully equipped, and without the infrastructure most stores use for same-day delivery fulfillment right now. So for perspective, they have roughly 1,900 stores throughout the United States. So this is no small undertaking with many of those stores in those rural areas. Additionally, in all of their stores, they are rolling out a dedicated curbside greeter for buy online, pick up in store purchases, or should I say pick up out of store purchases, Previously, customers had to go in the store to make contact with personnel to pick up their items. Now they can just drive up to many of their stores and do the same thing. Now, to support both of these measures, both the same-day delivery, next-day delivery as well as something that they've mentioned, and the curbside greeter, they're actually hiring an additional 5,000 employees. So that's around two and a half more per location if you do the math effectively. They also extended their $2 per hour bonus pay into May for the hourly employees. Initially, it was scheduled to run until the end of April. Beyond that, they announced 100% coverage for COVID-19 under their company medical plan and announced cost waivers for telehealth services. Finally, they're trying as soon as possible to roll out contactless pay to all of their locations. We talk about next day delivery, same day delivery. That's a big undertaking, but... Contactless pay, this is an initiative that was on the back burner a bit for many retailers, including Tractor Supply, but that's now at the forefront. And this is perhaps the hardest task of all because it does require specialized integration of point of sale technology, which is not just snap your fingers and do it or hire more employees and have it done. Meanwhile, their store cleaning initiatives do seem in line with other retailers. They rolled out a press release last week that there's an indoor greeter assigned to deliver the social distancing message, if you will, to customers and sanitize carts. They've introduced a designated hour for seniors, plexiglass at some registers, and they're working to provide gloves, face masks, shields, and sanitizer for their employees. All of that pretty run-of-the-mill stuff nowadays. But in sum, we feel as though the most interesting comment came from their president and CEO, Hal Lawton, when he said that April sales remain strong, yet categories were shifting. 
This is so big because I feel like this is what we're seeing in the rest of retail as well, but it signals perhaps a stronger upcoming run of seasonal. Retailers that relied on Easter for seasonal, they might have been left out in the cold, but a good run on seasonal coming up would be crucial for not only tractor supply as a retailer, but others. We've seen retailers in other segments, we just talked about Dollar Tree, for example, worry about seasonal orders, which have been placed for months now, having to go to clearance bins or pack away for next year. And this is a signal for retailers with a strong outdoors spring seasonal presence. Think Home Depot, Lowe's, Menards, Ace, and so forth. Shrink on plants, so loss on plants and other spring perishables may be less than previously thought, given the pandemic. An interesting thing on plants, usually ordering takes place throughout the spring year on an as-needed basis. Sometimes contracts are in place. Usually shrink will hurt, of course, the retailer itself, but there are some providers that will actually take shrink on their back. So interesting dynamic there in the garden space, but certainly signals from Tractor Supply Company that it might be a very strong spring as people turn to the garden. As always, we may have a position in or against companies we discuss on the podcast. Do not invest in stocks solely on the input of the podcast hosts. We've reached the final segment of the Retail Focus Podcast, a segment we call Looking Ahead, where we talk about a story we're keeping an eye on for the next week, month, or year, and we begin with Layton. My looking ahead has to do with Amazon and their approach here with fulfilling online orders. Amazon, of course, owns Whole Foods, and we covered that story years ago. With that Whole Foods merger, there's supposed to be a lot of synergies with the placement of online orders and the fulfillment within those Whole Foods physical locations. And right now, during this pandemic, the idea is that Whole Foods and Amazon can get together and more seamlessly help those new accounts, those new members that are creating online orders that are going to be fulfilled through Whole Foods, and then also help Whole Foods personnel to prioritize some orders from existing customers buying food online. So the story is kind of twofold, and it's a looking ahead because it's it's pretty relevant to the situation out there with this pandemic going on. But what Amazon has decided to do is basically make new customers wait a little bit in line, create a wait list of customers that are new to the platform to create online orders. They can start getting orders as of Monday this week. So earlier than this week or the day that we're actually recording this very podcast. So you're looking at April 13th, new members can actually start buying online groceries. But overall, a lot of those customers that are already in the queue, customers that have been members in the online platform have had to wait quite a bit, Trent. I know you said that you've waited many, many days now for your order to be fulfilled via Whole Foods. What Whole Foods is doing then to prioritize those people and to actually make sure that the backfilling happens here is they're actually reducing the amount of store hours. So they're going to be open less in hopes that their store personnel can actually fulfill all of these orders. So maybe cashiers will be grabbing stock off the shelves to help the backlog of orders, if you will, and try to get those out the door and really usher in those new customers that are going to be on that wait list. But a lot of interesting things here because you read some of the articles out there, Trent, you would think that Whole Foods had grocery pickup at nearly all of their locations, but that simply was not the case. They only had 80 locations 
with full-on grocery pickup services. Now they're bumping that also up to 150 along with this other news that I'm speaking of. So Whole Foods has a long ways to go. When you look at a company like Kroger with their ClickList platform, nearly all of their banners have implemented this over the past couple of years and customers are delighted with the service. They've been able to create a mass amount of data. So there's a lot more predictability with the platform. They're constantly improving the platform to be faster and more innovative. However, Whole Foods, with all of the talk of synergies with Amazon coming into the fold, it just still does not have the infrastructure you would have thought they had had coming into this pandemic. Now you're starting to kind of see maybe the chinks in the armor, if you will, for the idea that they had this massive infrastructure to back Whole Foods. But it is good, at least, that they are seeing some opportunity here to expand the grocery pickup services and to allocate the human capital part of the equation, the Whole Foods workers, in order to, again, assess the situation and maybe help get that backlog of orders down to a a smaller level. So I kind of ended the news section of the podcast talking about Tractor Supply Company, talking about strength in some of the seasonal areas there, and how this might affect other retailers with garden centers positively. But I wanted to provide a counterpoint to that, and this comes by way of Michigan, who along with Vermont, they are requiring large retail stores, the likes of Meyer in Michigan is probably the main one you think of, but Target, Walmart, and others... They are barring them from selling non-essential products. And the Michigan law is interesting, or the Michigan stay-at-home order, I should say, is interesting because it specifically mentions plants and garden centers. Also, along with that, furniture, paint, more along those lines. Now, like I said, this is going to affect a lot of retailers. Now, you've probably seen the headlines, Walmart and Target. Well, those are the retailers that certainly grab the headlines, but Meyer is one such store in Michigan that has a massive influence. You know, Of course, based in Michigan, we've got a ton of stores in the upper Midwest. How does this affect retailers like them? But also, you know, I don't want to call into question the sensibility of the order, but we're talking about a massive store here. And we're talking about, especially as it pertains to garden centers and plants, a lot of that is outside. A lot of it would be easy to maintain social distancing and also... You know, of course, Gretchen Whitmer, the Michigan governor, said, hey, if you're not getting food or medication, you shouldn't be going to the store. But really, you think about it, seeds, vegetable plants, that type of thing. Will those things be necessary in two months? Because we're already seeing cracks in the food chain throughout the U.S. Doesn't it make sense to maybe encourage people to grow their own food so that you decrease traffic to the grocery stores in a couple of months? Now, the nursery industry is huge in Michigan. It is one of the main plant growing areas in the United States. So there's a lot of question here as to whether this will continue and whether this will spread throughout the U.S. if garden centers everywhere are going to be closed. If so, I think it could potentially be short-sighted because I don't think, I could be wrong, but I don't think this is going anywhere anytime soon. And if you can encourage people to maybe grow their own or produce their own fruits and vegetables rather than going to the store. You can eventually cut down on store trips, but also the supply chain is going to be damaged for a long period of time. We just talked earlier about having a hard time finding people to collect the produce, to actually pick the produce and harvest the produce that's already being harvested. Supply chain is going to be hurting in many areas. 
come June, July, August anyway, regardless of whether stores are fully open, regardless of whether there's a stay-at-home order or not, you would think that maybe not encouraging, but allowing garden centers to stay open might, over the longer term, ease some of that pain. I don't know. Just something to think about, and that's why I'm looking ahead to it to see if certain counties and certain governments are following suit or if they'll stand strong in terms of allowing those garden centers to stay open. Well, that'll do it for us here on the Retail Focus Podcast. For Layton, I'm Trent. So long until next week. A big thanks to Christine Aslanian for joining us on today's show. We'll be back one week from now. This has been the Retail Focus Podcast. For more, visit our website at retailfocuspodcast.com and subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher. Follow us on Twitter at Retail Podcast.